Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and um, we just thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given us and blessed us with. And Lord, I pray as we get into your word, Lord, may your Holy Spirit lead our time. Speak into our lives, Lord. Our hearts, our minds. And Lord, if we pray that your Spirit would teach us about who you are and how you see us, Lord. We thank you and give this time to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, we've all been asked this question, and maybe you may not like this question, but we've all been asked this, who do you most resemble? Do you most resemble your mom or your dad? Right? You've all been asked that. So let me just do a quick poll. How many of you would say you resemble most your dad? You resemble your dad the most. Or someone has told you you resemble your dad the most? All right. Not many. How many of you have been told you resemble most like your, you look like your mom? All right. I had a feeling this was going to happen. How many of you has been told that you are just like your mom? Not just look like him, but you are just like your mom. <laughs> how many of you, I won't tell you how many hands were up. How many of you said, you've been told, or you can identify, you are just like your dad? Interesting. Okay. How many of you don't even want to answer that question, and you're just like, actually, I bet you I got to be adopted. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I could tell a lot of people don't want to answer that question, right? And, you know, we realize as we get older that you begin, you, we are, we, you learn as you get older, you are like, we are like sponges. We're like sponges. We learn from our environment. We learn from other people, our surroundings, we learn behaviors, we learn mannerisms simply by being present, by watching, right? And I know and I realize a lot of people don't like answering that question, who you're most like, your mom or your dad, because there are a lot of people who spend their whole lives just trying not to be like their moms or their dads. And you don't have to raise your hand about that question. But that's just, that's just the reality. But the more you go along, you realize we were created to be patterns. We just subconsciously learn by watching, by being present in something. And if you're old enough to recognize yourself that you do something or you act or you look just like your mom or your dad, it can be a frightening thought, right? But we do that. Even our thoughts, even the things that we say, I remember the first time in college, or not college, let me back up. I remember the first time as a parent that I did or said something that was just like my parents. And yes, my mom is sitting right here. And I remember that, and it was frightening. 
because all those years that I was like, oh, that's what my mom says, that's what my dad says, and I realized I said or did the exact same thing. But we realize that God created us to be patterns. But the great thing about it is that we were patterned after the perfect template. God's intention for man and woman was to be the visible representation of God and his creation. We were fashioned in his likeness and that we were to learn from him, learn from his character. So you see that the picture of a child representing their parents, maybe they look like their parents, maybe they, they, they learn and they model after their parents. That picture of what we all go through is a tangible lesson about how we, ought to, how we are with God. You follow me? Just as we were created and, you know, we are a visible representation of our parents, whether you look like your mom or your dad, you look like both, and whether you've learned their behaviors, you've learned their mannerisms, good or bad, that's a picture of how we were created to be with God. Okay? Now, the title of today's message is Breaking the Mold. How many of you have heard of that phrase, breaking the mold? Yeah? Usually when we use that phrase, breaking the mold, that's a positive thing usually, right? When we say breaking the mold, that means that someone is like extraordinary. They're like not common. So there's a mold of how things are made and someone just breaks the mold. And so usually that's, that's used in a more of a positive connotation, right? That you, you just break the mold. You're extraordinary. You're not like everybody else. But I'm using that phrase today in a different way. Today we're looking at how the breaking the mold refers to how Satan wants to break the mold into pieces. We were created in God's image, but Satan wants to break us down, tear us into pieces, and then put us back together, but feeling broken. He wants us to see ourselves as broken pieces, marred, imperfect. And Satan wants to break us from the mold in which God intended us to be. He wants us to feel like we are a mistake in God's design. He wants to confuse us and leave us questioning our purpose, our value, our worth, and question our Creator. So he wants us to leave us feeling and questioning and wondering, who do I want most to resemble? Who do I want to be like? So last week we focused on the sixth day of creation. We saw how God created us in his image, in his likeness. We're going to pick it up in verse 29. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 29. If you missed anything last week, you weren't here last week, all the previous messages are up on YouTube or on a Facebook page. I encourage you to catch up if you can. Verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. 
And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, if you've been with us or if you've read Genesis 1 careful enough, you've noticed that there's a repeated declaration throughout the creation account. Here we see there's six times God saw in his creative work and he saw that it was good. In other words, good or pleasant, agreeable, right? In verse 4, we saw that God saw the light and it was good. God called the dry land earth the gathering of the waters and he called them the sea he called it the seas and he said it was good. Verse 12 or saw that it was good. Verse 12 the earth brought forth vegetation and all these different seed-bearing plants and so forth. And he said and he saw that it was good. Verse 17 God placed all the luminaries the stars and the plants in the sky. To govern the day and the night, he separated the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God created all the sea creatures and all the creatures that fly, and God saw that it was good. And then verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth, all the cattle and all the creeping things on the ground, even those bugs that you may be afraid of, right? And he saw it and said, it was good. This repeated theme throughout the creation account. But then on the seventh time, God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. It was very good. How many of you are artists, musicians, Writers, cooks, you do anything. How many of you do something? Okay. You're a student. You write papers or do whatever it is, right? I'm sure you can all relate to this experience. You're doing something. You're preparing something. Maybe you're drawing. Maybe you're writing something. Maybe you're cooking something. And you just finish. And you look at it. And you realize, I made a mistake. Or you taste it and say, oh, this is terrible. Or you finish writing and you look and say, oh, this doesn't, this isn't right. That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? I, I can relate to that. There was a, a particular retreat and I was writing messages and all week and preparing and stuff like that. And I thought I had finished a sermon. I spent hours on it. And I realized... This isn't right. It just doesn't feel right. So you know what I had to do? I had to do that control A, delete. Deleted the whole thing because it just, just wasn't right. We all know that feeling at some point in time when we did something, created something, and it wasn't good enough, and you had to delete it and wipe it out and start all over, right? That's a terrible feeling. On the other hand, hopefully you can relate to that, the opposite experience. You created something, you wrote something, you cooked something, 
whatever you did, and you finished it, and you looked at it, or you tasted it, you read it to yourself, and you said, this is right. This is good. I'm not changing a thing. That's a good feeling. That's a great feeling to walk away from, right? It's interesting that each individual moment in the day when God created something, he saw that it was good, but it was incomplete. And it wasn't until he finished, he looked at all that he had created and made, and then he said, this is very good. This is very good. No flaw in his design. He didn't look back and say, oh, you know what? I should have done something differently. I could have tweaked it a little bit differently. No, he looked at everything and said, this is very good. But after all that he had created, he had one more act of provision, and that is the seventh day. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it, he rested from all his work which God had created and made. We see how God, he establishes a day of rest to commemorate all his work. This is the only day that we see that God sanctified it, set it apart as a holy day. There's three occasions where we see in Genesis 1 where God blessed. God blessed in day 5 when he created the creatures that swim and that fly. He said, be fruitful and multiply. We see on day six, when he created man and woman, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And then here on day seven, he blessed that day, sanctified it as a day of rest. What do we learn by that from this? As work was instituted by God, God also instituted this concept of rest of rest in other words God did not intend us to always be working now let me say that again because there may be some people in here who have a hard time reconciling this God did not intend us to always be working Our bodies were not meant to be constantly working without time of rest. We were not meant to constantly be working and not enjoy the fruits of our labor. Now again, some of you may have a hard time with this. Some of you have a really easy time with this. You're like, sounds good to me. Six days of rest, one day of work? No, 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 no. That's not the order, right? But many of you grew up with parents who were constantly working. They were constantly working. And this may have left an imprint 
on you and your concepts of a mother, a father, a husband, and wife. It made an imprint on you on your perception of family, of work. That was the imprint they left. Mom and dad were always working. And it may have taught you something positive about work ethic, right? Work ethic is good. It may have taught you a concept about dedication. Dedication is good. Admirable qualities, right? But that often came at the expense of family time. It came at the expense of time with God. It came at the expense of self-maintenance. They didn't take care of themselves. Right? The concept of always working. You had to work because you had to do these certain things. You had these goals. You had these things. You had to provide. You do all those things. But there was no time to rest. There was no time to enjoy the fruit of your labor. There was no time to enjoy your family, to spend time with them, actual time with them. So what happens? We learn to work, right? But we learn also to not enjoy the fruit of our labor. We're always constantly working for the next thing. We're always constantly working for what we don't have. So we don't enjoy the blessings that we've already been given, right? We're constantly worried about what we lack and we, we overlook what we already have. And this is not what God intended. That's not what God intended us to be or do. Rest is a provision by God. And that could be a tough lesson for people. Now, what we do with our rest is for another message, right? What we do with our rest is another message. But I want to challenge you, and this is not the the full message, but are you working so hard that you're neglecting the blessings that God has already given you? Are you in the mindset that I always have to be working, I always have to be doing something, that you fail to just stop and rest and be thankful and to appreciate what you already have? Are you a parent that you've worked so hard because that's been ingrained in you to constantly be doing and working and providing that you're not providing your children what they really need? Time with you. This is a tough lesson that many of us parents struggle with, fail to identify, right? So we can learn from what God did. He beheld all his creative work and he said, it was very good. My creative work is complete. I will rest from work. You rest from work. It's interesting that there's only one instance where God said something was not good. We'll get to that in a, in a, down the line in a couple messages from now. 
There's only thing that one thing that God declared was not good, and that was that man was alone. Again, that's for another time. We'll look at that more closely when we get into chapter 2. So what do we learn about God from this, even just this one chapter? We learn that what? God as the creator, right? He is creator. But God is also, he's not just a creator, he's a designer. He has purpose. He has intent. But also what do we learn? God is the standard maker. What do I mean by that? The standard maker. When you want to know a definition for a word, what do you do? If you're older, you go to a dictionary. (laughs) If you're not as old, what do you do? Just Google it, right? If you want to know the definition of something, you Google it, you find the source, a trusted source to give you the correct information, the usage, the definition, right? If you want to know if something is good, what do you do? You go to some source. If you want to know if something is good, like a restaurant is good, what do you do? Maybe you Google it, you look at the reviews. You go to Yelp, you look at the reviews, right? You want to know if something is good. If a restaurant, a product, whatever it is, if a movie is good, you see the reviews. See, God is the standard maker. God defines what is good. Because he's the standard bearer. He is the creator. He is the ultimate authority to declare what is good. Because his creation is good. He designed it. Right? And what he, how he designed it, how he created it, was pleasing to him. Jesus said it best when he talked to the rich young ruler. He responded to him and said, no one is good except what? God alone. God is the standard bearer for what is good. Now, we all have opinions of what is good, right? When we think of good, we're thinking of what is pleasing to us. What do we consider pleasurable? So what is good food? We all have different opinions on what is good food, right? Some of you may think sticky tofu is good. I beg to differ. You may ask me, have you tasted it yet? Well, I'll admit, I couldn't get past the smell. Okay? But we all have differing opinions on what is good food. We all have different opinions of what is good music. What is good music for one person may be good, not so good for another person, right? What a good restaurant is. All these things, we all have our own definitions of what is good. But where we get into danger territory is when we begin to redefine what God considers good. How God has defined what is good. When we begin to defy God's intention for our good, that's when we get into dangerous territory. If God defines what is good, Satan defies what is good. If God defines what is good, we're going to see Satan trying to defy what is good. Satan looks to sabotage what God defines as good. And we'll see that more closely when we get into the garden in chapter 3, 2 and 3. 
But see the pattern, right? The pattern, question God as creator, question God as good creator, and then what's going to happen? He's going to prop up man to be in the place of God. That's the pattern that we will see. Question God as the creator. Question him as a good creator. And then place yourself in the place of God. Last week I, I mentioned Satan's twofold strategy we see in how he tries to attack our understanding of what it means to be created in God's image and likeness. The two things he does devalue humanity, right? He wants to devalue humanity, devalue the idea of what it means to be created in his image and in his likeness. We see that with, with evolution. If he can reduce us to understand that we are merely a product of an evolutionary process with no design, no purpose, we're nothing more than evolved animals, reduce us to just being governed by our own impulses, or self-gratification, then he can get us to do whatever we please. Right? You are no more special than anything else that we see. So your life will only be as valuable as society cares to perceive it. We get, we get swept by whatever other people say is more valuable and what is worth. The voices around us speak loudly. They dictate to us what we ought to believe is more valuable, what is our worth, what we're to see as good, what is not good. And in case you're wondering, I'm not referring to any political party either. Right? Satan has no political party. He doesn't care which political party you affiliate with. He doesn't care where you align in that spectrum. All he wants to do is sabotage your understanding of what it means to bear God's likeness. And he will use pleasure, he will use pain to sabotage it. But he will also overvalue humanity, right? He will get you to want to think, you know what? God wanted us to be like him. You know what? Our sinful desires want to be him. That's what I mean by overvaluing humanity. He wants you to say, you know what? God's not really a good God. That's not what he intended. You do what you want to do, what pleases you, what you are inclined to do. If this is how you feel, do it. You are, you dictate your future, right? Now, how does Satan's strategy materialize? How does this play out? I think he attacks God's intentions by defiance, right? I mentioned that. I thought of four different areas. I was thinking about this, how Satan really tries to attack our understanding of what it means to be created in his image, how he uses to overvalue, undervalue our humanity and, and how we're created in God's image. I thought of four different areas, four S's, if you will. One is selfish pride. One is you'll use, manipulate selfish pride. Second thing, he'll attack our self-image. 
Thirdly, he will use sexuality. And four, make us question our sanctity of life, how we view life. We'll cover those four areas, not all today. We're going to take a look at selfish pride. It all starts with manipulating our selfish pride. Now, there's a good pride. There is a good pride and sinful pride, right? I think we can be proud of others. We can want to elevate others. I think that's a godly thing. The Bible tells us that God in due time will elevate us, right? I think it's okay for parents to be proud of your children, right? Jamie and I were proud of our daughter as she survived middle school. <laughs> we were proud of who she is and what she's accomplished. I think that's okay. That's a good thing, right? We can feel good about what we've done, the quality of work we've done. I think that's okay to do. God, after he created things, he saw that it was good. At the, at the end of the things of what he did, it was very good. God didn't say, oh, man, I doubted myself a little bit. Man, I shouldn't have made this this way. Oh, I could have done more with Pluto. I could, no, 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 no. Right? I think there's a good sense of pride. That's okay. But pride becomes sinful when it becomes, and it breeds arrogance, right? Pride becomes sinful when it's motivated by selfishness. Pride becomes destructive when it defies God's standard. It defies God's standard. Proverbs 6, 16 through 18. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. Proud eyes, haughty eyes. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, selfish pride is in opposition with God's desire for us, right? Selfish pride is in opposition of God's desire for us. And if you look at society today, society is becoming increasingly boastful about its sin, right? You look all around, it's paraded. It used to be, and I mentioned this on Friday nights, how it used to be that what people do behind closed doors was kept closed doors. People used to feel more shame about the things they did, how they portrayed themselves. But nowadays, it's just right up there. It's flaunted. It's boasted. They're proud of it. And we live in a more boastful society and culture. You look all around the world and we're living in. And it's no coincidence, as we see from a local level, a national level, and global level, the decline, the moral decline that we're heading. And it's increasingly faster and faster. Why do I think that is? 
I think it's because man is so set on being the center of the universe. They're so set, man is so set to be God, be in the place of God, where self is the true God. And we're seeing the consequences of it, right? Our culture is becoming more and more hedonistic. You know what hedonism is? Hedonism is basically sensual self-indulgence. The pursuit of self-indulgence. Pleasure-seeking replaces godly righteousness. Pleasure-seeking replaces godly righteousness. The mirror is like the altar. And self is God. That's hedonism. The pursuit of indulgence. So you're no longer pursuing righteousness, godly righteousness. You're just pursuing pleasure. Your mirror is like the altar. Whatever pleases that reflection. And you are your own God. That's hedonism. And that really just, just really is, paints a picture of what we're seeing so much today in our culture. That becomes the, the, a dominant message. But there's deceptive dangers of hedonism. There's dangers of hedonism. The pursuit of pleasure. Because not all pleasure is good, Right? Not all desires are good. And not all pain is bad. Can we all agree to this? Right? Can we all agree to this? Can we all understand, relate to this? Because see, we automatically associate pleasure with good, right? We automatically associate desires with, well, if you desire it, then go for it. We see it as a license to do what you want. But that's not necessarily the case. How many of us wanted to do something and we did it and we realized it was not good for us? Right? We pursued our desires and it led down a road that we maybe should not have done. The danger of drug use. Right? The lure of drugs is that it masks pain. It gives you temporary sensations that is pleasurable. But what you find out as you go down that road, there are consequences that are not good for you. The danger of desires is that sometimes it blinds you to the consequences of your actions. So we associate pain also as something is to be avoided, right? How many of you have heard that? You don't have to raise your hands. You said on like, I just want to avoid any pain, any discomfort. If something does, makes me feel uncomfortable, I don't like it. Ah, oh, the sermon is talking about something that makes me uncomfortable. It's not good. I don't like it. I don't want, I don't want to be uncomfortable. But we need pain. You're like, well, that sounds kind of weird. We need pain, don't we? What happens when we touch something that's hot? We feel what? Do we feel like, oh. We feel pain. That pain tells us don't touch because it hurts. We feel pain because it helps us to avoid things that we should not do. So not all pain is bad. Sometimes we need pain 
The question is, are we identifying what we're experiencing correctly? Pain tells us when something is not right, unhealthy, needs healing, right? But correct diagnosis is critical, isn't it? You may feel something's wrong with your body. Something's not right. You're not moving the right way. You feel off. And you go to the doctor so that you believe that the doctor can tell you what is wrong with you. Are they giving you the right diagnosis? Many of you can relate to this. You are feeling off. You go to a doctor and you're telling the doctor, hey, you know, something's not right. And you're trusting that they'll give you the right diagnosis. But some of you can relate to the experience of you go to a doctor and they have a wrong idea, wrong diagnosis, wrong treatment. And you go through years with wrong diagnosis, wrong treatment. You end up worse than when you started. See, people may be feeling pain and dissatisfaction, and they're given the wrong diagnosis and treatment plan. So who do you turn to for that relief? Who do you turn to for healing? And see, if we don't get a good handle on selfish pride, it leaves us vulnerable to all sorts of deception, deviations, and destructive behavior. If we feed our selfish pride, we end up devaluing God and his role in our life, and we seek what we desire, what we think is right, what we want to do. When people start messing with what God sees as good, that's when it becomes dangerous. Because then we think we know better. It's not about this. It's about what I think is good for me. What I think, my diagnosis of what's wrong with me. What the world says is wrong with me. Right? And if we choose to defy God's standard for what is good, what we end up doing is we exchange it for our own. If we reject what God sees as good, we're saying, you know what? I'm going to adopt what they think is good or what I think is good. So we see where selfish pride desires the seat of God. When we defy God's standards, say, you know what? I don't want God to tell me what's good, what's right. I'm going to dictate to myself what is good and what is right. Because selfish pride wants what it wants, when it wants, when it wants how it wants, with who, right, where. And selfish pride will always challenge God's intention and wisdom for us. And if the enemy can get us to challenge our creator, if the enemy can get us to defy God's standard for what is good, the enemy knows we're going to desire to make our own choices our own decisions, our own definition. And then we will focus on our image rather than God's image. We want to boost our likeness and avoid embodying the likeness of God. You see where it goes? We'll be less concerned about being the visible representation of God, being the image of God, and we will focus on our image. 
Instead of wanting to be the like in the likeness of God, we want to boost our own. I'll end with this verse in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And this is why, this is the main reason why I share this verse. Verse 8. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. I love that. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. See, the enemy is going to attack and try to manipulate selfish pride in us. It's going to cause us to want to distrust God. You make your decision. You, may, you be the definition of what is good. And what we end up doing is we don't trust God. We don't elevate God in our life. And we end up feeling sick. We end up feeling it in our, to our very bones. Some of us may be able to understand what that means. Where you just feel so bad, you just feel it in your bones. You're not in a good place, and it's deep. And the question is, are you having the right diagnosis of what is wrong And are you pursuing the right treatment of what you need to feel better? Because if you're set on feeding your selfish pride, you're distancing yourself from God. You're contrasting yourself from God. And you're not going to feel well. You're not going to feel whole in you. But that's what the enemy wants to do. Next, we're going to look at those other areas. Self-image, sexuality, and sanctity of life. Why did I choose those areas? Because we're seeing it. Those are the areas that are really challenging our perception and understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God and in his likeness. It all starts with him saying, you know what, you need a question. Does God really know what is good for you? You need to boost your image, your likeness. And that will lead us to all sorts of danger. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Lord, um, there's an enemy out there, Lord God, that is out to defy and sabotage our understanding of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Lord, the enemy is crafty. But Lord, you are mighty. You are more wise. But Lord, you are good. You are good. Lord, I pray you'd help us to see 
correctly. The influences around us, our own behaviors and tendencies. And Lord, if we've been feeding our flesh, our our selfish pride too much, Lord, I pray we would trust in you, turn to you, learn from you, Lord God, that we want to be like our Heavenly Father. We want to bear his likeness. We want to be like you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for being a good father and loving us, Lord. Pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.